On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the March 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Gregory Schmidt, Associate Chief Medical Officer and Professor of Medicine, and he's the Chief Medical Officer uh, within Critical Care, and he's at the University of Iowa. He's here to discuss his article, Point, Should Acute Fluid Resuscitation Be Guided Primarily by Inferior Vena Cable Ultrasound for Patients in Shock? Yes. Greg, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Kyle. My next guest is Dr. Pierre Corey, Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of Critical Care Service and Medical Director of Trauma and Life Support Center from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's here to discuss his article, Counterpoint, Should Acute Fluid Resuscitation Be Guided Primarily by Inferior Vena Cable Ultrasound for Patients in Shock? No. Pierre, thanks for joining us. Great. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. All right, guys, so let's, at a minimum, before we get started, let, let's kind of uh, set the stage for the listeners. You know, why are we even having this debate? I, I, is, you know, isn't fluids the answer for all people in some form of shock? I, I thought, you know, what do we need to measure? It's, can't, you know, they, they've got veins, we've got fluids, pour away. <laughs> it's meant to be a loaded question. Give me some credit. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. Respond. Greg, you did. You were involved in my training, Greg. So be careful. <laughs> I'm uh, happy to respond first to that one, and I would okay. say that the answer really is two things. You know, when I trained, in fact, that is what we did. When people were in shock, we opened up the fluids, <clears throat> but we learned uh, over time two key points. One is that many patients in shock fail to respond to fluid administration. Um, the second is that not only can fluid administration be ineffective, but it can be harmful. And so I believe there's largely consensus that it's become important to try to judge patients who are more likely to respond to fluids in order to limit harm for those who would not respond to fluids. Pierre, agree? Anything to add just to the, that I opening process? I think it's well said. I mean, the decision, you know, try to make the correct decision on whether to uh, give or, or hold fluids has been a, you know, a challenge since day one uh, in an ICU. Um, it is for all of us, and I think it always will be. Um, you know, our issues are this, right? In, in critical care, we have seen sea changes in how we treat certain diseases, right? If you go uh, looking just at sedation, right, we no longer sedate to oblivion, uh, you know, our patients who are in multi-organ failure on event. Uh, similarly with fluids, you know, we're, not, we're no longer flooding our patients until, you know, they're completely overloaded before we find a, a point at which to stop fluids. And so uh, we're trying to use, uh, you know, a little, little more judicious decisions uh, on how much to use uh, each of those interventions. Um, uh, and the fluid thing is, is, is the difficult one. Uh, trying to find the right dose of fluids is, is what we're here to talk about today. And Absolutely. whether the IVC can help it, <laughs> help Wait, make so that that's a, correct. That's a perfect segue then. So, so Greg, let's, let's, let, you know, you, you've got the point here. So let's, uh, let's enter in. So, you know, what's so great about IVC ultrasound? The key question, I'm going to be referring throughout our discussions, I suspect, to the cardiac function curve, often termed the Starling curve of the heart, in other words, the relationship between some, 
well, really, some infusion of fluid and whether stroke volume or cardiac output responds by increasing. And we all know that some of our patients can be on the steep portion of the cardiac function curve where fluid administration will raise the stroke volume, but other patients are on the flat portion. And it's really that um, point on the cardiac function curve that we are seeking to assess when we're making predictions about fluid responsiveness. So the reason that the IVC is interesting is that its variation with respiration while a very complex measure, um, in part, incorporates information about where the patient is sitting on the cardiac function curve. Pierre, what do you think? <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> I, what I think is that Dr. Schmidt and I have different... Uh, strength of belief in how well the IVC can identify where it is on this on these curves. Uh, I mean, we'll get into it right right away. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll make Dr. Schmidt's article uh, argument a little bit for him, right? Which is that if I'm going to summarize his article, his his argument, which is that if you see variation, and let's talk about which kind of variation, so collapse in the spontaneously breathing patient. He maintains that that is evidence that you're on the steep portion of the curve. Is that fair, Greg? Uh, that's the gist. It's a little more complex than that, but, but, and we'll come back to that complexity in a bit. But yes, if there's substantial inspiratory collapse of the IVC, in most instances, that will reflect um, a high probability of fluid response. Right. So if you if if the breathing is not at the extremes, if someone's either as long as they're not apneic or heaving, uh, you're saying that that relationship should hold. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and that we should be clarified. That's in a spontaneously breathing patient. Exactly. We're just talking about collapse now. So if you can take a look with an ultrasound probe and you see some indentation or right, a decrease in diameter in the respiratory cycle, that would mean collapse, and that would mean they're on the steep portion of the curve. You know, if you think about the physiologic principles, the venous return curve, and what, we're, what we learn about these curves and Starling, technically that's true. The problem is, in practice, it's just not true. I, I have the, the patients whose IVCs are collapsing are as fluid responsive as those that don't, which is right around 50%. I've seen that in my own experience. I see that time and time again. I see collapsible IVCs outside of the extremes of breathing. So these aren't patients who are, you know, in status asthmaticus, heaving on a ventilator. I, I see collapse that is not correlated with an increase in cardiac output from fluids. So let's break down each point one by one then. So, Greg, what's your counterpoint to that um, from your own, both your own clinical experience um, and the literature on that? And I, and I, I want to highlight one thing um, that I think we, we forgot to mention right at the outset, which is that, uh, and, and Greg put in his article and, and you indirectly referenced as well, Pierre, that none of these, of course, are taken in a vacuum. I mean, as you just said, like the patient's not heaving on a vent. You know, this is not someone gives me a, a picture of an IVC and says, tell me what the patient's doing. You know, there, there is a clinical context, starting with the fact that we said we're going to first talk about a spontaneously breathing patient. It changes the discussion if we're talking about a ventilated patient. 
Exactly. I think we've we've moved right into the area that is the most complex. My my guess is that um, Pierre and I would be in largely in agreement that in the passively ventilated patient, where all the preconditions for validity are met, that an inspiratory increase of, you know, pick the threshold, but a significant inspiratory increase in diameter of the IVC is a very good predictor of fluid responsiveness. I think a lot of the gist of Pierre's argument is that that's not a very common situation to find ourselves in as intensivists. So we'd have some disagreement about how often that, that is really the case. But the real, the real complexity, I think, is in the patient who's spontaneously breathing. And let me let me just emphasize that point that Dr. Schmidt is making because um, I, I don't think he and I make this error, but I, my sense is I see this error being made commonly, even in uh, published manuscripts. Um, I keep seeing sentences as, such as the following, which is IVC variation predicts fluid responsiveness with a high degree of accuracy, and the writer does not specify what kind of variation they're talking about, right? There's two types of variation. You know, your IVC can actually can either decrease or collapse, or it can distend, right? And it all depends on how you're breathing. If you're passive and you're being, you know, mechanically ventilated, uh, your IVC will increase during inspiration, and if you're spontaneous, it will collapse. And so what Dr. Schmidt is saying is, in those passive patients who are getting the you know the right preconditions, which is a, a good tidal volume, eight to ten mLs per kg, they're in sinus, they don't have abdominal hypertension, right? So if you can meet all of those, then if your IVC varies, which is to say it distends appreciably somewhere around twelve percent, depends how how you calculate it, that would be highly suggestive that the patient is fluid responsive. And uh, I think he and I both agree on the physiology and on the evidence behind that. Um, the challenge is I try to highlight the, the lack of clinical utility. I, I mean, it's probably twice a year where I find someone who meets all of those conditions. And then you guys should see me in the ICU. I'm like running down the hall screaming, hey, we have a, an IVC distension that we can use for a fluid responsiveness measure. And everyone wonders why I get so excited. And the reason why, because it happens twice a year. Well, well, Greg, what do you think about that? Since this is first an area of agreement in the sense of, you know, we have a patient who is passive uh, with 8 to 12 cc's per kg on the bed without abdominal hypertension, not acute core pulmonal, that we see IVC distension with uh, inspiration, um, that we all agree that that's a fluid-responsive patient based on the physiology and on the literature. But if, that's, if we're all in agreement on that, but Pierre's saying twice a year that's a useful test, I would. You made an argument that you definitely would see it more often than that. So, can we talk about the the clinical scenarios of of why there's either uh, such a difference in you know when we're both seeing it, or what you might do within your own clinical practice to try to you know create the environment that mm. IVC distension is is or change in IVC is useful. That that's a great point. I do want to come back to and please guide us back to um, Pierre's point that clinicians and even authors often aren't very careful in describing what they're talking about because okay. he and I actually are also going to agree about that point. And okay, I, think we need to, I think we need to be very careful in this discussion um, and, in, uh, and how we put this discussion together at the end that we're always really careful in uh, distinguishing the passively ventilated patient and the spontaneously breathing patient. Correct. 
But to answer your, your question about the patient who is passively ventilated, the, when the preconditions are met, that distension is a reliable predictor of fluid response. The way to have those preconditions met, largely those preconditions relate to an adequate tidal volume, the absence of significant intraabdominal hypertension, and the absence of core pulmonality. Now, I'm, I'm an intensivist echocardiographer. I can judge, and I know that Dr. Corey can judge, whether there's acute core pulmonality present. And that's part of something I'll come back to after a while, which is that predicting fluid responsiveness is not a simple look at the IVC and you're done without thinking about other things and taking into account other clinical points, including those that can be gleaned through point-of-care ultrasound. So we can, we can do that. We can identify whether there's acute pulmonary present. But the, the more challenging preconditions are whether the patient is passively ventilated, which um, is guaranteed if the patient is therapeutically paralyzed, but that's not most patients. And so judging right. whether a patient is truly passively ventilated requires expertise in interpreting ventilator waveforms and in assuring patient ventilator synchrony. That's not, a, that's not an easy thing to do, um, but it is something that can be done. And one of the things I think that distinguishes um, my intensive care practice and one of the reasons why I find this a more useful metric than some others is that there are tricks to achieving patient ventilator synchrony. And in particular, I'll mention just one. Um, Pierre has cited studies showing that the preconditions are met in only 2% of typical patients in an ICU. And, and that might be true if you don't do a couple of things. The key one is turn up the tidal volume for the portion of the measurement. So we are routinely ventilating patients with smallish tidal volumes on the order of six mils per kilo predicted body weight. That smaller tidal volume fails to boost the pleural pressure sufficiently to perturb the heart in a way that IVC ultrasound is valid. You simply have to use a bigger tidal volume in order to raise the pleural pressure enough to make the IVC distend. That can be done simply by turning up the tidal volume. And of course, after I make my measurement, I turn the tidal volume back down. That does make it more cumbersome than simply going to the bedside and plopping on the ultrasound probe. But I can turn up the tidal volume then I can make my measurements. A correlate of that is that turning up that tidal volume um, is likely to encourage a more passively ventilated patient, in other words, a more synchronized patient. Now, I, I will submit that there are patients who will be desynchronous without paralysis no matter what I do with the ventilator. That, that surely is the case. But it is not a two times a year uh, instance in my ICU to have a patient who is passively ventilated in whom I can turn up the tidal volume and make the measurement. Okay. Pierre, any, any I mean, thoughts? I mean, are you, were you defining it purely as someone who's a paralytic? I mean, I'll even expand on that a little bit. I, I mean, I think it's a fair point that. Again, yes, for the sake of argument, using that uh, paper where they just did a point prevalence and they saw how many patients, you know, met the conditions. 
certainly some of the conditions that were missing would be easy to fix, like a title volume change. If that was the only condition that was missing, certainly you could create more instances where patients met criteria to use IVC distension. The, the, the more challenging one is, it, you know, really the use of uh, neuromuscular blockers. I mean, for true synchrony, uh, you know, you would want some paralyzed. I would argue if you do a fluid responsiveness assessment soon after intubation in which you've used the paralytic, you could create more situations in which you can get a signal or a guide uh, for fluid decisions. Um, but that, that's a challenge. Uh, the other thing is the sinus rhythm, right? So you need, you know, you really need a, a sinus, a tidal volume, and a paralytic. And again, to get all those three, maybe it's somewhere more than two times a year, but it's definitely somewhere less than, than once a day. Uh, you know, in what about the, but what about the argument of using ventilator waveforms to truly determine synchrony and, and, a, and a passivity without a paralytic? I think it's nice conceptually. I, I, think he, I think he's capable of doing it. I think I'd be capable of doing it. I'm someone who's pretty tuned to ventilator waveforms. Um, possibly. Uh, I just don't know any evidence uh, of how valid that, that is and how, how good we would be at doing that. Um, but, you know, conceptually, it seems like it would uh, be worthwhile. So, Greg, I mean, obviously, in, in a point-counterpoint, you guys are, you know, when you're quoting literature, you're going to quote literature. But what each of you also can quote your experiences. So you, I'm assuming, frequently do, or very infrequently have patients on a paralytic um, prescribed, but wonder instead um, your experience in noting fluid responsiveness and then seeing actually, you know, it correlate to increased stroke volume slash cardiac output when by your measurement as you've dialed up the, you know, tidal volume and all the preconditions have been met, except there is no paralytic, but you note ventilator synchrony. What are you seeing clinically? Can you comment on that? Maybe you can't. Well, no, I, I can. And first, let me make some specific comments about ventilator settings because there are some ways in which intensivists ventilate patients where they're not going to see sufficient passiveness in order to make this valid. So pressure support ventilation, obviously, you're not going to have a passive patient, right? right. The second, right. Thing, second thing is that um, people often set the uh, default respiratory rate on the ventilator in the teens or low 20s, and that is going to force a patient to trigger the ventilator. If we look at the ARMA trial, the ARDS network trial that compared 6 versus 12 mils per kilo of predicted body weight, the 6 mils per kilo group had a mean respiratory rate on day 3 of 30. So that's a midland, middle-of-the-range respiratory rate. If you are routinely setting your respiratory rate at 18, um, you're going to see patients who are actively triggering the ventilator. Right. I, I tend to set the respiratory rate around 30 breaths per minute. I pretty commonly have patients who are fairly passive on the ventilator. The second thing I would say is when, when we think about when we really care about judging whether fluids are likely to be helpful or harmful, if a patient has severe ARDS, I am much more concerned about the harm of useless fluids. If a patient is well enough that they're spontaneously breathing, maybe not even on a ventilator, the risks of a fluid bolus are simply much less. So the patient in whom I'm really concerned is much more likely to be paralyzed 
you know, we do have uh, data from the Papazian trial that in severe ARDS, 48 hours of paralysis improves outcomes. So it's not so rare anymore um, to use paralytics, especially in the patients in whom the question is most important. So and I, I think, is, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, no, go ahead, Pierre, please. No, no. Oh, I, I, see, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think uh, Greg is, you know, highlighting, you know, uh, a couple of key populations of critically ill patients in which fluids are important, and which lend themselves a little easier to to more of a passive ventilation. And uh, and I agree. I like both of those points. Is that in ARDS? Yes, we can set ventilators or use paralytics uh, to lead to more passiveness. And the other thing is we're also looking for a higher standard to give someone fluids there, knowing that in that disease, right, ex excess fluids uh, seems to carry more harm than in other ones. Um, I, so I, I mean, I like, I like both of those points. So, so we seem to have some level of agreement in regards to, as we talked about, the preconditioned patient, passive on the ventilator, tidal volume 8 to 20, or 8 to 12, excuse me, uh, cc's per kg. Um, but both of you had, and had asked that I come back to this point about, what we sometimes see in the literature in regards to IVC evaluation with ultrasound uh, as kind of a, um, that the, that the preconditions or at least the situation in which we're using this technology, ventilated, unventilated uh, patient, um, that they get pretty frequently glossed together, I think was the point that both of you wanted to make, and that there needs to be a, a either better terminology or a strict uh, way that we're using these terms. And I think here that was one of the things that you've been most concerned about, um, that this, you know, an easy bedside tool, but if it's being used in the wrong clinical scenario, it's going to give bad information, um, starting to feel like a swan again. <laughs> right. And, and I think, I, you know, I, I think Greg agrees with that too. And we hope that's an error that wouldn't be made by, uh, you know, senior experienced intensivists. But again, the amount of people using obviously ultrasound to ask a fluid question is, is much more than gray-haired intensivists. So um, uh, I think it is important for the, the wider population of clinicians um, that they be very careful and they understand the differences uh, between, you know, uh, the validity of the information you're gaining from someone who's passive and someone who's spontaneous. Um, uh, and, yeah, so that's just it's a, it's a key, key issue. I don't think that people, I think they are conflating the two, and I think their general sense of the accuracy of IVC is a little bit influenced by the literature on distension, which is, uh, again, like I would, I, I'm going to argue, it's still the distinct minority of patients. Um, the vast majority have collapsible IVCs. Um, and to conflate the literature based on distension to collapse is, is going to give you a, a, definitely an inaccurate sense of, of how, uh, of its utility. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we could talk about that. Yeah, Craig, what do you think? You wanted me to bring it up, so let's, let's, let's round to that. Yeah, so uh, I do agree with that. I think, first of all, the physiology behind passive ventilation and spontaneous breathing is completely different. The determinants of the change in pleural pressure are completely different. And so these are, we really need to think about these as two separate tests. And even if we talk about dispensability in the patient who is passively ventilated, I find that many clinicians approach this test in a casual manner, meaning yeah. not being scrupulous about the preconditions. And so I completely agree with Dr. Corey about um, concerns about the casualness of the assessment. 
the, the proverbial, I slapped the probe on the stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I tell you, I've, I've heard that so many times, right, where uh, either a doctor in training or a colleague or someone will say, uh, patient X or Y was admitted in shock. I looked at the IVC. It was X and I did Y. So it's sort of like it, it seemed, people seem to suggest that they're making a decision based on one parameter, which is what the IVC's size and collapse was. And, and I hear that a lot. I, I hear a lot of, you know, rationale of fluid decisions where the argument is really based on just the IVC as a single point. And, and I think, you know, Dr. Schmidt addressed that issue, I think, very well in, in his piece, which is, you know, he described very well what, what it's like for an intensivist to make a decision, which is, you know, let's be honest, we're really not just relying on the IVC. Um, I'll just be blunt. I do use the IVC. I don't use it as a single metric or parameter. Um, I do integrate it and I do interpret it in the context of all of the other major hemodynamic factors of the patient. Um, I will. On pressors, how much fluids they've gotten. <laughs> like Dr. You know, Schmidt said, you know, do they have intradominal hypertension? Um, what is their heart? And the most important to me is the heart. I, I don't even make a comment on an IVC unless I know what's upstream, which is what is the heart doing? Is its function uh, reduced? Is it right or left? Or is it increased? Are they hyperdynamic? I think only if you know what heart function is, then it gives you a sense of what the IVC is trying to tell you or, or why the IVC is appearing the way it does. Um, and so uh, I think that would be a major point that Dr. Schmidt and I would both make is that um, when you're dealing with the spontaneously breathing patient, I think the IVC can be useful. It's just not, uh, again, the title of this counterpoint was it should be primarily guided by IVC, and that I, I strongly disagree with. IVC would be one point that I would use uh, in the context of all the other things I just mentioned. So, Greg, before you, before you um, weigh in, may I, can I provide a brief summary then just for our listeners so that we, as we've transitioned over now to spontaneously breathing. So there seems to be agreement in a passive patient on a ventilator with specific preconditions based on both the physiology and the literature that the ultrasound view of the IVC and its response and its uh, change is a measure of fluid responsiveness and it's a, it's a good tool. We can debate how often we see it um, and conditions that can be done to try to increase the number of patients that that those preconditions exist. We, we seem to be in agreement on that as a group. Agree. I, I think we are. I, I think, once again, be sure that you add those words as long as the preconditions for validity are present. Exactly. And that brings up the second point, which is that the usefulness of this tool is very dependent upon its the preconditions, uh, precondition settings on which it was validated in regards to distensibility on a passive ventilated patient. And we talked about sort of the way it's being thrown around freeform almost within the literature and, and on the medical wards. Yeah. Um, so now let's transition then over to where there's clearly, I think, more debate and, and, and discussion. So, you know, for the listener's sake, we're going to now talk about spontaneously breathing patients. Um, and so we'll leave the ventilated patients behind. So let's go to the spontaneously ventilated patients. Because that's where, you know, in, in both your articles, there, while Greg will argue it's still a good tool, at least in, in his article, you also admit that the literature is not as robust compared to the passive uh, ventilated patient. Yeah, so I think that's, that's fair. It's more challenging 
because the physiology is more complex, because there are multiple other determinants um, in addition to the position on the cardiac function curve. I want to emphasize, though, that the position on the cardiac function curve is still one of the major inputs to the change in IVC, and now we're talking about collapsibility. Correct. Um, the change in IVC during, a spon- during spontaneous breathing. So it still is, is feeding in as a piece of data. It's just there are other things that need to be taken into account. Like breathing. Pierre. So, Pierre, what do you think? <laughs> what I think is what Dr. Schmidt is saying does marry our, you know, our conceptual underpinnings of our physiology. So the physiologic principles... I think Dr. Schmidt is, is very well aware of them, and the way in which he says that IVC collapse, the kind of information that it's offering you, um, seems to make sense physiologically, but clinically it doesn't. There's just no, no evidence to show that. And the reason why I think there's a disconnect between the physiology and clinically is one of them is the breathing, is that there's just no way to control the breathing. And, and, I mean, I'll borrow it. Look, I'm actually looking at uh, Dr. Sch- Maybe this is unfair. I'm looking at Dr. Schmidt's, uh, one of his, uh, his counterpoint or his pro, and he uses a sentence which says, as long as inspiratory effort is sufficient and the patient is not recruiting accessory muscles at end expiration, this signal is physiologically sound. And he's referring to this, you know, uh, the, the drop in right atrial pressure from breathing causing a collapse in the IVC. And so as long as the breathing is sufficient and not excessive, um, that physiology is sad. And, and I maintain that the breathing in a heterogeneous group of critically ill patients on and off ventilators, in and out of different phases of sepsis and discomfort, the breathing is a completely uncontrolled variable, which really basically makes this physiology to, to, you just can't apply it because the breathing is the uncontrolled variable. And and that's why I think uh, all those papers that I cited which show no correlation between IVC collapse and the condition of fluid responsiveness, I think one of the large reasons is you can't control breathing in the critically ill. There is no, uh, you know, I made the joke, you know, we're not in the quiet of the echo lab right, with the lights turned down. And you can ask, you know, Mrs. Smith to take a nice little sniff, you know, a controlled sniff. Um, it just it doesn't work like that in the ICU. Well, so this issue of, of breathing is a confounder. Um, it may not be so impossible to control it. There has, since our point-counterpoint was uh, finalized, there has been an additional study by Sebastian Pro and colleagues. I was wondering if you'd seen that. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you hadn't. Yeah, you were probably probably hoping I hadn't because they, in fact, um, found a way to standardize um, a deep inspiration. Now, admittedly, in patients who were able to be coached do it. Exactly. And they did it using buckle pressure measurements and coaching of the patient. And they found that they were able to standardize the inspiratory effort and in that way develop a collapsibility index, which had a pretty good sensitivity and specificity. Now, in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step aside and let Pierre take apart how realistically that can be applied to our patients. <laughs> but, but before 
before I step aside, I want to say that this, this paper is actually an interesting one because they did measure the collapsibility index under the spontaneous conditions, non-standardized, and while they showed that the standardized method improved the diagnostic ability, even the spontaneous breathing um, showed that there was um, useful information that came from the inspiratory collapse. Now I'll step aside. And I'll just, I'm going to be kind here. I think those papers really do support the point, uh, the physiologic arguments that Dr. Schmidt was making. And I think those papers really do show that there is that physiology present. But again, I'm just going to briefly say in the IC, I mean, those are both done under study conditions with a selected population of patients who could perform those maneuvers, you know, even if those were true, and I, I do believe in the physiology and the outcomes of those papers, I still think it's a small subset of the larger heterogeneous ICU population, and so I still think it's of limited applicability, even if I could do buckle maneuvers or control <laughs> whatever so, it is so they let me ask, let, let me ask you about this, because both of you have brought up the point that you know the, the, the big picture and the patient in general matters. As Greg said earlier, both of you said, you know, in an ARDS patient where every drop matters, you, you want to be extremely judicious before you give another bolus of X amount of, you know, fluid based on the fact of the disease they have. But we're talking about a spontaneously breathing patient now. And so if there's room to give, if you will, so let me throw out kind of just this, this grenade out there and say, you know, what's the downside on a spontaneously breathing patient to giving someone some fluid that maybe wasn't as fluid responsive as we thought. Don't we have some cushion, if you will, or put a different way, if I'm going to be wrong, is it, is it okay to be wrong on the side of giving a little more fluid rather than less? Well, I don't think I say, it to, be, I say it to be provocative. That's, I'm, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, okay, great. I, I, have, I do have some sympathy for that argument, and I, and I made some variation on that argument at the early part of our conversation here, which is that perhaps those patients aren't as sick and it's maybe not as important. But I, but I think, to be fair, many of those patients are going to get on a ventilator or fair inappropriate enough. or unhelpful fluids may in fact be the tipping point that put the, puts them on a ventilator. Yeah. I, I also want to say that I'm not sure that we as a field, really understand um, how harmful fluids are or aren't. I think we're still learning that. And I want to just point to one particular study, which was a very interesting study in uh, Africa of young patients with acute infectious shock, where there wasn't critical care. None of these are ventilated patients. And this was intended to be a study of crystalloid versus colloid. But that study had a third arm, which was no fluid bolus at all. And what was remarkable is that there were no differences in short or long-term outcome, crystalloid versus colloid. But the arm that did the best, both short-term and long-term, was the ones who didn't get any fluids at all. So it is at least a tenable hypothesis that we are harming some patients who are spontaneously breathing, presenting with sepsis, and you might not think they're terribly sick, um, but we're harming them with fluids that don't do any good. Don't just do something, stand there. Yeah, but I think, Kyle, your point and, and Greg's point, I think this is the key of why we're even having 
this point and counterpoint and podcast, which is we think fluids are important. We just don't. We know the benefits are large, and we know the harms are there. <laughs> we don't really know. I, I, Kyle, I would agree that the way you stated the issue, I think, is what this is my guess of what most clinicians feel is. I think they have more of an appreciation for the benefit of that extra liter, the potential benefit, rather than the harm of that extra liter. Um, I, I think there's a general tendency to give more than less. Um, no, that's what, that, that's my. No, that's definitely why I asked it. And you know, and of course, the uh, the world of, of steroids for IPF come to mind. What's the right. harm, right? Oh, right. oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Lots and, and of many harm. Other, and, and many other things, you know. Right, um, right, right. And, and so ultimately, the, I, I, I'll sort of not that we're coming to the end, but I sort of want to give you a, a little bit my take on how I use all of this and where IVC fits in my approach to a patient, which is. I sort of approach a patient a couple of ways. One is I kind of humbly tell myself that it's impossible to really know exactly the truth of what that fluid decision will be. Like I, I, I'll never know that I'm perfectly right or wrong, um, unless obviously you give them a half liter and they immediately go into pulmonary edema. I think that's pretty good feedback that you did something uh, unnecessary. But in, in general, it's very hard to know precisely what the right thing is. And so... We use our judgment based on all of the information at our command. And I think Dr. Schmidt outlined a lot of the things that I think about. I think about where they are in their resuscitation, how much fluids have they gotten, you know, where are they in that initial 30 cc's per kg. I like that as an initial fluid. And then I ask for my fluid decisions after the initial fluid resuscitation. And really, in my mind, the way I'm speaking right now, I'm thinking about the septic patient. And I, and I referred to that in my... Um, in my arguments is that patients who are coming with what I call pure hypovolemic insults, again, it's not everyone, but there are patients who we admit with really clinically evident hypovolemic shock, those aren't the patients that we're really uh, challenged by as far as volume or fluid decisions. It's, it's really the septic patients that are, their physiology is really challenging. When you do ultrasound on a septic patient, and this is the key thing that I think everyone needs to understand is ultrasound of the acutely septic patient they look exactly like the hypovolemic patient, which is small chambers, tachycardic, hyperdynamic, small collapsible IVCs. So the acutely bleeding patient who's volume down and the acutely septic patient can look identical. And although we like to think that ultrasound can differentiate the two, they really can't. Um, they look very, very similarly. And so when do I give volume? Well, again, so in that septic patient who my clinical diagnosis is septus, septic, they look, and I'm using quotes here, they look like they have low filling pressures, right, which is to say the IVC is small, collapsible, uh, they're hyperdynamic. You know, then I start saying, you know, what was their, you know, what was the history of present illness? How long were they ill for? Had they had high fevers? Did they look like they, did they have a reason to have lost significant amounts of volume? Like did they have a diarrheal illness or something that would make them more hypovolemic than the average septic patient? So I, I look for things like that, again, and how much they got. Um, and then I also look at their heart, right? So, um you know, uh, not only the ARDS patient where we want to avoid fluids. For me, echo and IVC ultrasound, one of the most helpful things is when I find a distended IVC where I wasn't expecting it. So sometimes we find unknown right heart problems. So you have patients who are coming in 
with significant amount of comorbidities. And I find the IVC ultrasound is really helpful at me at defining a cardiac problem. Um, and so I can help categorize shock states with IVC. So either the presence of a distended one basically rules out hypovolemia or severe vasodilation. If you have a, a large IVC, it pretty much rules out those two as the primary cause. And then conversely, a very small IVC would flat out rule out uh, PE or tamponade. So I, I am using IVCs in rather crude categorical fashions. And, but, you know, in the spontaneously breathing patient with collapsible, I'm sorry, but I, you know, in my early studies, this is anecdotally some of these papers I've published, but I noticed that literally small IVCs, IVCs less than one centimeter that are very collapsible, still only half of those patients were fluid responsive. So, you know, I, basically I don't just look at an IVC that's small and collapsible and say that patient needs fluids. I try to come up with more rationale why they do. And then to finalize, ultimately what I'm trying to do is come up with a probability that fluids will help versus harm. So I don't say, like, definitely this patient absolutely needs fluids. What I say is, Let's try fluids on this patient because I think they're going to be better off with it. I think they need an improvement in cardiac output, and I think the fluids will do that. Uh, so I'll say that, or I'll say to the team or to the group that I'm working with, I'll say, I think we should hold off on fluids. I don't think that further fluids is going to help this patient. I think it's more likely it's not going to help or it's going to hurt, and therefore we should hold. But, you know, again, it's a very deliberate decision in which I rely on many, many different data points, because there is no gold standard. There's no one data point. And as much as we would really love IVC ultrasound to be that one data point um, because of its simplicity, it's just not. And I'll, I'll stop talking there. Well, I think it was a really nice kind of summation statement. Greg, do you want, would, why don't you offer up one as well, please? Well, let me say two things in response. First of all, with regards to the patient who has a very thin IVC in the setting of sepsis, um, it is possible that fluids is not the best therapy. But that's not really the question that we're invited to ask here. The, the question is, is fluids likely to raise cardiac output in the short term? And I would, I would maintain that in the patient that Dr. Corey described, that patient is likely to respond to a fluid bolus with an increase in cardiac output. And I think conventional management would be then therefore give fluids. Now the, the Maitland study of sub-Saharan kids with infectious shock um, should make us question whether that's really true. And it is possible that vasoactive therapy would be a superior response than fluids. But that's really a different a different argument. So right. I, want to come, I want to come back to the, the question that we're really posed, which is, does a small or a substantially collapsing IVC predict fluid responsiveness? Because I think that the answer is, it usually does. Now, I heard Dr. Corey say, um, I see plenty of instances in which small IVCs do not predict fluid responsiveness. And I, too, have those patients where I see a small IVC, give a fluid bolus, and it doesn't go up. In fact, I, I give another fluid bolus, another fluid bolus, the IVC is still small, and, right. I, and I'm scratching my head. So we all, right. see those, we all see those patients. But if we look now at bigger numbers and not just our anecdotal experiences, 
I, I referred earlier to the study of pro and colleagues that did the standardized inspiration. When you look at their results for the non-standardized inspiration, in other words, spontaneously breathing patients, just the ones we're talking about here, as long as the collapsibility index was greater than about 40%, their specificity was quite high. And that mirrored the studies of Muller and colleagues and Arapetian. Now, Arapetian's study is purportedly a study that counters my hypothesis. In other words, their conclusion was in a spontaneously breathing patient, collapsibility does not predict fluid responsiveness. And across the entire range, their, their uh, conclusions were valid. But even in their study, when the collapsibility index was greater than you know, roughly 50%, the specificity was very high, it was 97%. So all three of these studies show that as long as you're collapsing on the order of 50%, you are likely to respond to fluids. You, you are substantially more likely than not to respond to fluids on the order of 80, 90%. So that's one study which showed that in some patients with lots of collapse, they seemed to identify that in those they almost invariably responded to fluids. Um, so you could use that one paper and that one finding and say, the problem is there's other papers which don't show that. They, they cannot find a cutoff of collapse. Uh, so Arapetian seemed to have picked a collapse cutoff there's multiple other papers where they could not find one. There was no differentiator of collapse which allowed them to say these patients are more or less likely. And again, in, you know, in, the, in my publication, I, I cite eight, I think seven different uh, uh, groups that did this. And the only two which found even a modest predictive ability really used a lot of clinically hypovolemic patients, meaning they enrolled patients who they knew were hypovolemic and whose only physiologic uh, pathology was hypovolemia. And, and again, those aren't the ones that confuse us. Um, so, uh, well, well, let me ask you then, Pierre. So in a spontaneously breathing patient who is uh, in shock, um, if IVC ultrasound is not a useful tool, that would be the counterpoint, right, because it's the idea it's primarily being guided, what tools are you using? Could, I mean, is that more or less your summary statement between the everything I HPI? have? <laughs> so, what, what, your, what, you, what would be your go-to? Because it, it, so, I'll I, tell I you, one of the things, mouth, one of the things that defines me, and I think Dr. Schmidt also, is I like, I love the term sono intensivist. So, I'm a sono intensivist, meaning anyone in shock or respiratory failure that I encounter in an ICU is going to get a heart and lung ultrasound. Period. So, I have. Uh, echocardiographic cardiac function information at my disposal at the time that I'm making these decisions. I have lung ultrasound information at my disposal. I can identify extravascular lung water, whether it's present or not, or even permeability edema, ARDS. Um, so I'm doing heart and lung, and also I'm reviewing how much they've gotten, where they are, at what time point am I doing this, is it early on, is it later. Um, do I use IVC? I do. I just don't believe that as a standalone metric, it should be the basis of a fluid decision. I will integrate it with all the others. So, for instance, 
the patient with the collapsible IVC of 50%, I've had those patients who I'm examining and they've only gotten a liter at the time of my exam. I've also had those patients with small IVCs and collapsible who are six liters in. I'm going to behave a little differently between the one who's six liters in and the one who's one liter in. Um, whether I'm right or wrong, this is some of how I put together and think that. Um, again, these are imperfect tools. Um, right. No, the burden, the burden of proof is greatly, obviously, greater for the one liter or the six liter patient than the one liter patient. Exactly. And it's all probability, right? The idea that the seventh leader is going to help that patient is unlikely. The idea that the second leader is going to help the first patient is much greater, right? And so, and I, and I appreciate Dr. Schmidt saying that, you know, we're not here to talk about the relative benefits of fluids over pressors, um, but I, we do mention because my alternative to fluids in some patients, if I feel they've gotten enough and if I feel extra fluid is either not going to help or it's going to harm, my general approach, again, we're talking about the sort of septic patient, is, is I try to move to earlier vasopressors if, if I have evidence that I don't think they're going to respond to fluids. All right, guys, well, we've been talking for a while, and I want to be respectful of your time. This has been actually a fantastic debate, as predicted. <laughs> um, I want to make sure there's any other kind of final thoughts or closing thoughts or something we haven't touched upon. Um, and so give you that sort of free, free you know, uh, floor there to uh, make some final thoughts. Well, I'll give one, one, can I just give one last one, Greg, because I, I think yeah, I yeah. said everything I want sure. to do, which is, you know, without sounding silly, you know, in one sentence I say I don't use IVC primarily, and I don't, but I will say, and I think a lot of us do this, is that, you know, depending where the IVC is on the extremes, I will use it a little bit more. So a very distended and variable IVC, I will use that as a strong signal to influence my fluid decision, which is I find it nearly impossible to give a patient fluids in those circumstances. In very rare circumstances would I give that patient fluids. And then similarly, the uh, virtual collapsed or you know, uh, you know, almost obliterated IVC, I would more than likely give that patient fluids. The problem is, is that most patients are actually in the middle, and that's why I don't find the IVC that helpful. So every time a house staff or someone I'm working with, a fellow, lets me know what the IVC is, I'd say 70 to 80% of the time that IVC is in some range where I don't find it that helpful, and, and therefore I don't use it. It's something in between. All right. Greg? Um, I'll make three points. I think the first is the area where uh, Pierre and I are going to agree to disagree has to do with this middle zone and, you know, 60% inspiratory collapse in the spontaneously breathing patient and how much the data support utility. I will grant that it is um, appropriate for pro, con, and for debate. Uh, but that, that's the area where I think the listener should look at the primary data and come to their own conclusion because we simply disagree about uh, the interpretation of the data at this point. Where I think we have very substantial agreement um, is what Pierre said just a few moments ago, which is that the judgment is not a one-size-fits-all, make the measurement, you're done. It's quite a complex assessment that requires capabilities in multiple areas of ICU ultrasound. I have seen, and I have no doubt that Pierre has also seen, instances where a clinician 
has um, judged the IVC to be fine, full, not varying, and therefore withheld fluids. And when I have examined the patient, I've found that they were looking at the aorta. Agreed. Um, and that's easy to do when the IVC is completely collapsed, just the situation in which it is critically important to give fluids. So no doubt it is possible to make gross errors in this area if there is not attention to detail. And one of the reasons why I put um, in my point article the specifics on how to, to make the measurement is because it's not self-evident, and if you don't do it according to the, the details I put in Table 1 of that paper, then you are prone to making an error. Gar garbage so, in, garbage out. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think, great point. I, I think, I, every one of my fellows has made that mistake once. I emphasize once. <laughs> yeah. And it, <laughs> they, they've and all looked at an aorta and thought it was the IVC, but not for very long. And I hope out there there's not a whole lot more people who are doing that. And, and that's because you're, you're a good team supervisor to make that right. a learning right. opportunity instead of a recurring error. Exactly. But I, but I also want to conclude by saying that um, when, when we say it's hard, I, I'm not saying... Um, well, you know, you can't do this, but, but I can do it. I know how. Just trust me. I do think that it is a systematic thing that can be taught. It can be learned. It's not just an art. And right. that with appropriate attention to the details, that a good intensivist who's capable of ultrasound can use variations in the IVC, both in the passive patient and the spontaneously breathing patient, that factored in with all other clinical information, does change how we get fluids. I'll agree with that. Excellent. Let's end, let's, we end with a smile. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, guys, this was fantastic as I as I knew it would be. So, um, great. Thank you so much for your time. This Thanks, was huh? this was this was perfect. Great. All right. Happy to happy to participate. All right. Good day, guys. All thank right. you. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye now. Yeah. Right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Pierre. Bye. Thanks, Craig.